If you're listening to this episode, you are probably somewhere along the process of becoming a nurse, becoming an ICU nurse, becoming a CRNA. You are a hard worker, you're smart, you're really intelligent, and you probably are studying for boards exams or you're going to have to take boards at some point. And one of the worst things that you can think of is failing. What is failure? How do you deal with the fear of failure? And how are you going to overcome failures that might come across along your way? Before we dive into it, my name is Anna. I am a second year student registered nurse anesthetist, and my business partner is Chrissy. I'm a CRNA of six years. Before that, I was a CVICU nurse. And together, we have this Confident Care Academy podcast to give you guys free education and resources, as well as the Confident Care Academy membership, where we dive into in-depth pathophysiology, pharmacology, and everything you need for wraparound support along your ICU and or future CRNA journey. Check us out there and like and subscribe to the podcast. It helps us out a lot. As we are diving right into it, I think we first need to talk about failure in itself and fear of failure. And how does that connect to working in critical care or to anesthesia? So most people in this space have a huge fear of failure. We are working in high stakes environments. Yeah, me too. High stakes environments. And we really don't have margins for error because if we fail, we could hurt somebody, right? So not only are we hard on each other, we're extremely hard on ourselves. Um, if you're one of the people who've gotten into CRNA school at this point and nursing school as well, these are very competitive programs to get into. So you have to be a high achiever. You have to be a hard worker. You're likely really hard on yourself academically too. Many high achieving individuals, particularly in healthcare, experience something called imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon. Um, like it's now sort of slowly switching names. So we'll probably change the two terms um, interchangeably back and forth throughout this episode. But I'm going to read you guys the definition of imposter syndrome because I think it's really interesting. And most of you statistically have experienced this and or are experiencing this right now. <laughs> So imposter syndrome is a behavioral health phenomenon described as the self-doubt of intellect, skills, or accomplishments among high-achieving individuals. These individuals cannot internalize their success and subsequently experience pervasive feelings of self-doubt, anxiety, depression, and or apprehension of being exposed as a fraud in their work despite verifiable and objective evidence of their successfulness. So this was first described in 1978 by Suzanne Imes, PhD, and Pauline Rose Clance, PhD. And this was an observation first among successful women and other marginalized groups. Further research since has now come to recognize that this affects both men and women and particularly does affect people in high stakes environments like healthcare. Um, and marginalized groups in general. So particularly people of marginalized socioeconomic status and race and ethnicity. On the subject of health professionals specifically, there was actually a study that found that one half of female medical students experience this and one quarter of males. So this just shows how pervasive this truly is in healthcare settings. So if you're <laughs> listening to this podcast, it's more likely than not that you've probably experienced this. In those people who experience imposter syndrome, there typically tends to be two opposite responses to it, and people kind of fall into either category. So people either tend to respond by over-preparing or they respond by procrastination. I love this. I'm going to read this right off the screen too. In over-preparation, those with imposter syndrome 
feel they must work harder than others to achieve the same goal. And because of this objectively false perception that one must put in more effort, they are an imposter. So I think that's really interesting, right? Like they have this false perception that they need to work harder than everyone else around them in order to get an A. And because they work so hard to get that A, they must not really deserve to be there. It's just all their hard work and overcompensation that has allowed them to skate through. Mm. That good grade is not evidence in and of itself that they do deserve the success that they're seeing. In cases of procrastination, those with imposter syndrome feel that they are an imposter due to hurried last minute preparation and will eventually be exposed as a fraud. That is me. <laughs> 100%. I am category B. <laughs> or at least I used to be. So upon completion of this task, there's this brief sense of accomplishment or success or triumph. But in spite of that very brief moment where you feel good, there is a failure to internalize it in a lasting way. So you tend to overlook the accomplishments that you've made until this point. And I give out that advice to people all the time who are asking me like about imposter syndrome. I say you just have to keep showing up and proving it to yourself and stop and look back and reframe and like remember how far you've come. Like remember each hurdle you have overcome and think about how you would talk to a friend about that. The psychology of success and the psychology of failure are so intertwined. And as now a graduate student, this is exactly what my friends and I talk about all the time. CRNA school is hard. It's really hard. You have to maintain an 82% average. In some schools, it's even 85% average to remain enrolled in the program. That's a high benchmark for success, especially in exams where there's no buffer assignments and it's only based off of your grades and your exam performance alone. That precludes anxiety. That sets you up to place a lot of value on how you do on exams. And for people who are, you know, very hard workers, academically gifted, and also have worked in high-stakes environments as ICU nurses for years before starting CRNA school, so much of your identity can get caught up in your performance on exams. It has been wild for us to kind of reflect back on our last four semesters of CRNA school and see how constantly the bar is raised and what they expect from us academically, but then each time we're able to meet those expectations. If you set a standard, you will meet that. And then internalizing that so that you know to learn how to trust yourself has been so, so key. I think there's, you know, the generic quotes afloat around that whether you think you can do it or you think you can't do it, you're right. It's so true. To learn to bet on yourself because yeah. it's statistically a good bet. You've done well on every exam up, up until this point. So bet on yourself moving forward. I think, honestly, we might need a whole episode on exam anxiety in CRNA school, honestly. Like an entire <laughs> dedicated episode because it's brutal out it, there. It's it, hard. It's actually just going to be a meditation episode where <laughs> we just do a guided meditation for it's you. rain sounds. like. <laughs> Maybe a nice soothing background. <laughs> Beside a lake or a river. It's like, oh. On a loop. <laughs> and that's like a CEU for SRNAs is learning how <laughs> learning how to relax. So <laughs> learning to trust yourself because it's a statistically good bet. Again, that's a great topic. But then heading into failure because we will encounter failure at some point throughout our medical or nursing education and training throughout our professional career, we will have a failure. So then how do you approach failure and how should we interact with failure? So 
I can think of a few examples of failure in my journey. Um, and it's funny because I think if I spoke to someone outside of healthcare, they would consider it not a failure. <laughs> but to me at the time, it truly did feel like the end of the world. And I think that's a really interesting point about the psychology of failure. We really do tend to catastrophize it and think that like the world is over and it does in fact prove that I don't belong. Mm-hmm. It's almost like it feels like it's improve, It's proving your imposter syndrome right. So it's going to be really important for you to hear about the failures candidly from others. So we're going to talk about our own experiences. And I'm also going to tell you guys about what happened to several people in my class when we graduated. And then we're going to dive into a little bit more like, how do you deal with it? So for me personally, one of my big like failures in CRNA school was two weeks into clinical. Um, my primary preceptor at my clinical site did a lot of neuroanesthesia. So diving right into the operating room first time as an SRNA, instead of, yeah, instead of starting out with like easy bread and butter cases, they're pretty sick patients. They're like older, they have chronic pain, they're having, and they're not just having cute little spine surgeries, like a one level laminectomy. They're having these big bloody spine cases. And this is a lot to start out with proning the patient, like flipping them prone. You're learning to intubate. You have to do all these special considerations for neuromonitoring, like all these extra things. And that's like my first introduction to anesthesia. So I'm on week two with this preceptor and I felt like I was finally getting the rhythm down. My first case went really well. And the second case was um, like different than the first one. It was just done differently. And so I set up for it a little bit wrong And my preceptor was like, what are you doing? Like, don't you remember last week when we did this case, how it went? And I was like, "Mm, sorry. And you said it was week two. (laughs) And it was only a week two. So you'd been in the OR like, you know, five, six, seven, eight days total at this point. Like you had just got there. And it was just like, and at that point we didn't have Epic from home yet. So you couldn't prepare for like the second case of the day ahead yet. Like Mm. at the time, our clinical coordinator would just say like, oh, you're doing spines and your first cases. Like, they would just tell you, like, the, you know what I mean? The so general. I didn't always know, like, what my second or third case would be. And, like, totally. I, so I didn't, like, read up for ACDF, anterior cervical disectomy infusion, um, even though I had read up for yeah, the, the first case. case yeah. Right. So that was, like, just a weird quirk of the clinical site. Now the students have Epic from home. They can see all the cases. Anyway, that's besides the point. The point is that then all these things started going wrong, like just tangling my lines and missing my intubation and forgetting to like turn the vent on after I connected my circuit. And then there was something wrong with the gas analyzer and the inhalational anesthetic reading was jumping all over the place. Like there was actually something broken on the machine. And so you know, at first our end title, sevoflurane, which is for those of you who aren't in the OR yet, the amount of inhalational gas that the patient is expiring was reading a really high number, meaning the patient has enough anesthesia on board. It's time to turn it down. I go to turn it down and then it drops to like zero. Not what? normal. I, I know. And so I pointed it out to my preceptor and she's like, don't you understand how equilibration works? <laughs> and I was just like, I I swear a second ago, the end title said like six. And she's like, that's the inspiration. I'm like, no, no, the expire did. I I swear it did. Like, and then 
we're looking at it and then the numbers start jumping all over the place and we end up actually switching out the gas analyzer. Like it really was an equipment failure, but instead of her like kind of reeling it, like to her, that was so not a big deal because this is like her every day and she's dealing with students all the time. And she didn't really think about how she was coming across to me. It's like my fourth day in the operating room ever. And I have so much pressure on myself to be perfect. And I already think I don't deserve to be there. And now I'm hearing these criticisms and like, I went and I cried on my lunch break and I came back to the room kind of puffy and then I got called out on it. <laughs> and I cried they called again. you out for crying? They were like, did you cry? <laughs> and then the you start crying like, again. The, I'll never forget Peter, the resident's face. <laughs> he became an attending. I like died. Anyway, Peter, the, the, the neurosurgery resident, put down his tools, looked over the drape and looked back at me and like had a sad look in his eyes. <laughs> Peter's a real one. Shout Peter's out to Peter. Peter's a real one. I felt Peter. <laughs> it was hard to go out to me in that moment. <laughs> Peter. We Peter. love you, Pete. Anyway. <laughs> Team Peter. Anyway. My cat's named Peter. Not after him. Anyway. But <laughs> <laughs> the point is that, like, it was such a small moment. Like, oh, me, like, botching, like, my, you know. Your setup. My, my setup, my induction. Like, just having all these stupid little errors. But there were so many in a row back to back to back. I deeply questioned my ability to be there and yeah. to return to clinical and like actually learn when, you know, a, a healthy mindset would say, hey, it's your second week in the OR. It's like your third or fourth day. Like, right. chill out, girlfriend. Like, you'll get it. You had a great first case. But we tend to catastrophize these little blips and be so hard. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you how many students DM me, ask me in person, all— all the time. Chrissy, I'm still not good at intubating. What do I do? And I'm like, why do you care? It's practice. Why do you care? It's, I could teach a monkey to intubate. Like that has no bearing on your like ability to become a good anesthesia provider. You will get there, but you got to keep, it's repetition. Like not everyone's going to get it on the first try. It's fine. Like how long did it take you to learn IVs? Most of us a while. You have to practice being kind to yourself. What kind of failures have you encountered? Being kind to yourself is something that has taken me until I was 27 years old to learn. It is so ingrained, I think, in us to be people pleasers and to take care of the people around us, often at the expense of being kind to ourselves. And the first couple of failures in my life, I didn't really have the context of a framework to be kind to myself. The first big failure that comes to mind, which I'm so grateful for in hindsight, was I failed at my dream. My dream was to be a professional Christian missionary ballerina, which you can check out the podcast episode about our origin story if you want to hear more about why Chrissy and I are the way that we are. (laughs) That's a podcast episode from a couple episodes ago. But at the time, my whole world centered around ballet. And I thought that I was going to go to this one specific company. I was the only girl from my um, group of the pre-professionals who was not called back to the trainee program. So to have like your whole world, and in high school, of course, your frontal lobe isn't developed all the way. So, and you're also very dramatic, but you know, I thought my world was ending when I didn't get into that ballet company. So then to learn that I was able to pick myself up and then start over, I say that I retired from my career as a ballerina at 18, which is like, dramatic. It's pretty funny, but like I was planning to retire at retire at 28 from ballet and then become a nurse. But I got the chance to kind of like go after a dream and for it to not work out. And then to make a choice to pick myself back up and then to pursue nursing, which is like opened so many more doors and I'm so passionate about it. 
But it is, it's hard to set your entire self-worth upon something and then for it not to work out. But then on the flip side, you learn that you're going to be okay on the other side of it. A little bit more related to anesthesia, as a third semester SRNA, we had just started didactic, like the true core meaty anesthesia classes, your chemistry and physics, your anatomy, the and advanced physiology one and two. My very first anatomy exam, I failed. Oh my gosh. Stressful because you have to maintain an 82% average. There were no other papers or group projects or assignments to fill the buffer. And of course, in anesthesia school, you have to maintain at most programs greater than 82%. So failing was a 72. I got a 72% lowest grade in the class because it'll show the distribution. Oh my gosh, you question everything. You're like, am I good enough to be here? Did I completely mess up in studying? Because then it's not like I didn't study. And what had happened was I thought it was going to be like an anatomy structures exam and it ended up being a nerve block application exam, which is like, anyway, for a different time. But like, <laughs> I was able to pick it up and then scored like A's and B's on the rest of the exams and passed the class for the rest of the semester. But if I had allowed myself to get into this negative headspace where, oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, I am working way harder than everybody else here. Oh, I can't do this. It was really important in that moment to be like, okay, you didn't know what to expect. And then you studied the wrong material. How can I now make some changes so I can do what I need to do? And I've had to learn to trust myself to make that happen, which kind of leads into, you know, like what happens if like the worst happens, right? Like what if you do fail, you know, what if you fail not just one exam, but like a class or your boards, right? So like these are the real, the real boogeymen that live inside of our heads as high achievers, right? Like the what if I fail boards? What if I fail my NCLEX? What if I fail my medical surgical nursing two class? Like What's on the other side of that? You know what I mean? Well, and that does happen. And as someone who's been like a preceptor for so many years, I do mm -hmm. see people have to do remediation for clinical sometimes. I have come across students who've failed courses and had to retake them. You know, the worst case scenario is typically not the actual worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the times people think, okay, I fail a class. Like, that's it. I'm kicked out of CRNA school. Like, no, there is a remediation process. Like, you might repeat a semester. You might even repeat a year and that would totally suck, but it happens and people do it and they come back from it. Um, we did have a few people in my class fail their boards exam, which mm -hmm. was so funny to me because, and I shouldn't say the word funny. It was so surprising to me because we were in, you know, the, all of my classmates were really smart. Really bright, I mean, like yeah. scary smart, you know, only the average admissions rate to CRNA school is like 15%, like five to seven now, five to seven. So you are, you know, already a very driven, motivated, intelligent person. If you've gotten there in the first place mm -hmm. and the people I was with in particular were just phenomenal, They're just really, really, they nice. were phenomenal. And all of them had good grades throughout the program. And like, there was no indication that any of them would fill a boards exam, but because our program was a little bit more condensed, we didn't get boards preparation time during school. Mm. You had to do it all yourself after graduation, which honestly I think is totally, I don't think that was a bad thing, but I think the problem was that a lot of people got overconfident because they were such good students at the amount that they needed to prep for boards and, you know, the level of detail you have to go into and, you know, knowing the Wiggers diagram and flow volume loops and 
Oh, get ready. I'm seeing it in my <laughs> mind right now. I'm like seeing the volume. PKA loops. tables, all of these little tiny things you have to really know. Every single like, you know, the action potential and like, and all this. Oh, Alpha man. versus beta neurons and what, which ones are myelinated and what crosses a blood brain barrier. Anyway, yeah. It's anyway, going to be great. All this stuff. It's going to be great. <laughs> um, and so they, you know, they've studied for like two weeks and then took the exam and failed. And it was so devastating to the people it happened to. And it really kind of rocked their world. But every single one of them was able to dust themselves off, do a little bit more studying. Another two weeks is all they needed. Like had they just waited and like studied enough up front, like they all would have been fine. Mm -hmm. And they all passed the second time. People fail their NCLEX. They pass the second time. They pass the third time. They pass the fourth time. Same thing. It happens in every single field. Um, it's okay to take a test again. It's okay to repeat a semester. I mean, it sucks. Nobody wants to do it. But it doesn't mean you don't deserve to be there. It just means you need to regroup and pick a new strategy. So when picking a new strategy, you can't avoid failure all the time. Failures will happen at some point throughout your career in healthcare. So learning how to do positive self-talk, very important. But how can you re-strategize on the beginning side of things to hopefully avoid some failures? <laughs> well, first and foremost, we have an episode for that. <laughs> we have um, the How to Get Good Grades Science-Based Study Techniques episode. You should definitely check out. But you know, a little recap here. It is normal to forget the majority of information you just processed after learning. Here's the actual statistic. We forget about 75% of what we learned a day or two after attending a class or reading a chapter or an article. Most of that forgetting happens within the first hour. So up on the screen, we're going to show the forgetting curve. Da, da, da. So if you've been here before, you've seen us talk about the forgetting <laughs> this curve. This is our third time talking about the forgetting curve. But... <laughs> We forget about 60% of what we just processed within the first 20 minutes. So the mistake that most students make is rereading. They're going to reread the textbook chapter over and over and over and over again and highlight it and underline it. And is that an effective study technique? No, it is not. No, it is not. And we'll prove it to you in the science-based study techniques episode. But um, the most effective thing you can do is instead focus on spaced repetition and active recall. So that's in the form of like practice questions, brain dumping without cheating. Um, and by are, cheating, we mean brain dumping, which again, you just really should listen to the how to get better grades episode. If brain dumping can be beneficial if you are just doing recall. So blank piece of paper, not looking at your computer or your book for notes, write down everything you can remember about a topic and try to connect it, whether it's visually with drawing, or you can just write things down in paragraph format, everything you can remember about a topic. That is one way to do spaced repetition. And also, I will say this. I also, on my YouTube channel, have my semester-by-semester semester recaps of what I'm learning and, like, what I would do differently. So check out the Anna SRNA YouTube channel as well. One thing that I've learned from semester four of anesthesia school is that not only are practice questions good in spaced repetition, but also the paragraph format is good because some of our questions are essay format. So they'll be like, tell me everything you remember about the... AANA monitoring standards for billing reimbursement and or tell me everything that you remember about uh, 
the billing requirements for direction versus supervision, da 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 da. So it's not just recognition on a multiple choice. It's essay. Or they'll give me a patient presentation. They'll say, this is a 65-year-old man coming in for a laparoscopic procedure. Here's his past medical history. Write out your anesthesia plan. Okay, I need to be able to draw from my mind to remember all of the doses, everything that I'm going to give, what size equipment I'm going to use. That's such a good, that is such a good uh, exercise. I love that that's how your exams are. Yay. I love that. Anyway, sorry. So I think that it's good to practice not only teach back, but also writing out like an, like an anesthesia plan or writing everything you know about some topics. So definitely incorporate that into your studying. We're going to show on the screen exactly what we mean by space repetition learning. Um, so this is, you know, uh, an example of a space repetition table. So first you're going to do some review, like immediately after class, then 24 hours later, then a week later, then a month later. And that is how you overcome that forgetting curve and refresh information back to that, how to get better grades episode, actually reviewing the content too often can like exhaust your brain and make it harder to recall information. So it is really important that you're using a good strategy. And that's actually why we are excited to talk about the sponsor of today's episode, Picmonic. The adaptable practice question banks combined with the unique visual memory tools make it an excellent choice for both nursing and graduate medical students to incorporate learning concepts together as a whole and not just memorizing by topic. Picmonic serves over 1.6 million healthcare students and they have multiple different programs. So they have programs for nursing students, but they also have programs for physicians and NPs. We found both of those programs have very similar curriculums and are really adaptable for helping CRNA students understand in-depth pathophysiology and pharmacology as well. Mastering pathophysiology and pharmacology is the core of everything we do because it's essential to becoming a good clinician now and in the future as well. So it's going to really help you with complete topic mastery, which is why we love it. Check out the link in our description and head to Picmonic and use code Confident Care Academy to get 20% off. So now that you're avoiding failure, if possible, <laughs> and you are preparing to fail at some point, what are some ways that you can be kind to yourself and practice self-compassion when you inevitably do interact with failure? So I'm going to link in the description this really interesting article on self-compassion. And the author talks about self-compassion as encompassing acts of mindfulness. So it's more than just taking on a narcissistic approach of saying like, oh, like you just kind of like block out the bad thoughts and replace them with thoughts of self-importance. When you're practicing self-compassion, it's really important to be aware of the feelings that you're experiencing. So being aware of the anxiety or the fear or the sensation of imposter phenomenon that is coming your way and recognize it, rationalize it, and then let it go. Mm. I really love this quote from the article. When individuals acknowledge their pain and extend compassion to themselves, they avoid repressing their thoughts and feelings. And when they recognize the broader human context of their experience, they also avoid the trap of over-identification. While self-compassion entails being kind to self in the instances of failure, it does not entail complacency or lack of standards for the self. And this is gonna be particularly important <laughs> 
this one is going to be a little bit of a roast for the RRNAs out there. I'm about to roast y'all real hard. So educational psychologists often make a distinction between mastery-based and performance-based achievement goals. And this is something that I think a lot of people in nursing school and CRNA school, this is a trap a lot of people fall into. They fall into the trap of performance-based goals. And this is where a lot of that um, self-punishment comes in and where self-compassion can really have an opportunity to help you grow. So it's going to be a light roast. (laughs) Thank you for the warning. (laughs) Okay. So this is going to be a little bit of reading off the definition too, because I just think it's, it's so good how she wrote it. And again, I'm linking this article below. You guys are going to love it. Students with a mastery orientation towards learning are motivated by curiosity and the desire to develop skills, master tasks, and understand new material. They tend to set their own standards for achievement, make effort attributions for success and failure, and view the making of mistakes as part of the learning process. So this is a really healthy mindset to think about. This is where we talk about that thirst for knowledge, the wanting to learn for the sake of learning, and having your goal to be a good clinician, a good nurse, a good CRNA, just topic mastery in general kind of takes the pressure off of that every day. Like I need to get the A. When you reframe your goals to, I want to be a good CRNA, you naturally prioritize studying for clinical over studying for an exam because you know, the patient on the table is more important than you getting an A plus instead of a B plus on your grades. So on the other hand, students with performance orientation, which I think we've all seen a lot of our classmates have this, uh, the whole top of the class, yeah. The, the entire top of the class, <laughs> roast, um, are motivated to defend or enhance their own sense of self-worth. They tend to make ability attributions for success and failure. So meaning when you succeed or you fail, you've placed that as like, oh, I'm able or I'm not able. And they tend to evaluate their ability through social comparisons with others. Ooh. That is huge. Zing. And it ties into... My self-worth is not related to my academic performance per se, but it's related to my academic performance in comparison to my peers, which is a difficult trap to fall into. And I see people in my cohort who aren't able to sleep at night unless they're in the top quartile of the class for every single exam grade. It's so toxic. That is such a trap to chase constantly because- what is the goal at the end of the day? Is the goal for you to outscore 75% of the people in the class by getting one more question right? Or is the goal for you to be a good provider? I'd rather be a good provider and also go on a run or go work out than get two more questions right on an exam. Well, and more importantly, you're training your mindset for how you're going to behave in the clinical environment. Mm. And if you see your success as the ability to be better than your peers, you're naturally not fostering teamwork or a team environment. And you're prioritizing your own ego above your patients. If you really care about the person on the table in front of you, the patient, you will naturally want everyone around you to be just as smart, if not smarter than you, because that's how they're going to get good care. When the shit hits the fan in the operating room and your patient's coding, I want every single person who runs in the room to be just as capable as me, if not better. If I am trying to outperform others and put them down or limit their knowledge or access to skill sets, I'm only going to be shooting myself in the foot and more importantly, harming my patient in the end. Because medicine is a team sport at the end of the day. It is not about comparison and how you do in comparison to your classmates and your peers. 
as an indicator of your own self-worth and worthiness to be there. It's hard. It's hard to unpack it. I think most people haven't unpacked it to that level. They want to just be at the top of the class and they aren't able to articulate why. Well, we're about to unpack it deeper Get in this ready. next talking point below. <laughs> <laughs> so out of the performance approach um, goals, there's actually two subtypes. So there's people who are oriented towards achieving success. And then there's people who are oriented towards avoiding failure. So performance approach goals try to outperform others in order to demonstrate their competence. While performance avoidance goals, meaning avoiding failure, they attempt to avoid situations in which they might fail be- for fear of being labeled stupid or incompetent. Mm-hmm. Oof. Um, I definitely, I feel like in my past, I've avoided trying new things because I was afraid of failure. Research suggests that mastery goals are more academically adaptive than performance goals. So meaning looking towards mastery as your goal as opposed to competition. And it's linked to higher levels of intrinsic motivation, greater effort and persistence of tasks, and a willingness to seek help with schoolwork. In contrast, performance avoidance goals have been linked to lower levels of intrinsic motivation, learned helplessness, disorganized study, and unwillingness to seek help and anxiety. I also deleted this from the writing, but there was a mention in the article of like people who are performance oriented and in competition with others being more likely to have like lateral violence as well. I mean, we see that played out all the time. Healthcare, we should all be here for the reason that we want to take care of our patients. And that should be why everybody's in healthcare. The reality of that is not the case. The reality is that there are kind of pervasive issues in that people, some people choose, you know, healthcare for status and wealth at the end of the day. And people who have those intrinsic motivating factors are less likely to be good teammates. And we've all worked with people like this. Like I'm sure we've all interacted and interfaced with people who are not in it for the right reasons per se. I'll say that the majority of people are here for the right reasons, but I think the majority of people might not have also dissected what their own motivations are, particularly the people pleasers, the people who want to always score a 98, the people who have attached a lot of their self-worth to their academic performance and haven't really unpacked how that affects them. I think there's some stuff here to kind of sort through and dig through. And I like the mastery-based approach versus the performance-based approach. And I think also, particularly in CRNA school, this episode is going to be for everybody, but especially in CRNA school, right? Like you're going from being a good ICU nurse You're going from being a resource to your unit, an educator, a preceptor, somebody that everybody comes to and they have a question, to being all thumbs on the OR and you know nothing. That's hard. It's hard. So how do you like reestablish your self-worth? Is it through grades or is it going to be through your ability to be a good teammate and a good learner and to accept that you're looking for mastery-based approach versus performance-based approach? It's a big adjustment. It's hard to go back to grad school in your late 20s, you know? This is exactly where, like, the performance goals and self-compassion gets tied in. So people who have these performance-oriented goals do have higher levels of anxiety. And again, the article link below cites lots of research about that, which was really interesting. When people practice self-compassion, so here, so here's the study, self-compassion, achievement goals, and coping with academic failure. They found a positive correlation between self-compassion and mastery goals, meaning people who are oriented towards just learning mastery in general did a better job at being compassionate with themselves. And a negative correlation between self-compassion and performance goals. 
they had an even stronger negative correlation between self-compassion and performance avoidance goals, meaning people who practiced self-compassion tended to be mastery goal-oriented and people who were performance approach and especially performance avoided oriented had the least self-compassion. Self-compassion was negatively correlated with fear of failure and positively correlated with perceived competence, meaning people who had this mastery goal orientation and self-compassion had less fear of failure and more perceived confidence. So you're going to have more confidence in yourself with this mindset reframing. It was also positively correlated with intrinsic motivation and negatively correlated with anxiety. So self-compassion leading to more intrinsic motivation and less anxiety. Interestingly enough, and this is going to be so good for you guys who I always tell y'all to let go of the A, it is not correlated with GPA. So letting go of the A is not going to affect your GPA, but it was significantly correlated with gender. So women were found to have slightly lower levels of self-compassion than men. Yeah, that tracks. That tracks. When people are intrinsically motivated, they also experience life in general as more enjoyable and satisfying. Mastery goal adoption was also the strongest predictor of intrinsic motivation in academic context. So by not harshly judging yourself or blowing your own failures out of proportion, self-confidence was associated with greater confidence in your own ability to learn. I'm sorry, self-compassion was associated with greater confidence in your own ability to learn, less trepidation concerning possible failure, and in turn, that led to greater mastery goal adoption. So people seeing failures instead as experiences to learn and grow, not a reflection on their own ability and not seeing their ability as a competition with others allowed them to have greater self-worth and be more resilient and achieve more academic goals in the end. So it actually helps their overall, not only experience, but performance in the long run. It's a positive feedback loop. And our professors on day one of core didactic told us point blank, they do not care if we make an 88% or a 94%. They don't care. What they want is for us to understand the material and be great clinicians and accept feedback. And some of my classmates haven't taken that to heart. That's okay. You know, they should listen to this episode. We can send it to them. I'm kidding. <laughs> but, I'll send it. I'll do it. I'll go there. <laughs> Chrissy will go there. But it is wild to reflect over even the last, you know, I think for me, it's six years in healthcare. And me six years ago was so performance-based. My self-worth was based on whether I could get an A in everything. It was based on whether I was getting the approval of all of my coworkers. It was an external source of self-worth. And now, finally, I know that I am a good person and I bring to the table a desire to help other people. And when that self-worth has shifted inward, now I can receive harsh, fe harsh feedback. And I know that it's not because I'm not worthy of being here and it's not because I'm, you know, incapable or incompetent. Maybe they didn't have coffee yet today, you know? Shifting that self-worth inward and then also shifting your goals towards wanting to be the best provider that you can be. Oh my gosh, night and day difference. And then it's like you said, it's a positive feedback loop because then you're warmer and then people will be more inclined to bring you into new experiences. They'll teach you more. They see that energy and they want for you to succeed because people like to teach people. Also, that's allowed for us to, you know, start all of, if we had been afraid of failure, we wouldn't have started a podcast or Confident Care Academy. Oh my gosh. Just getting up there. Church. It all started with a church and a microphone. <laughs> 
That's a reference to our villain origin episode. Yeah, go check here. out the origin story <laughs> episode. We both had a very interesting like childhood and high school experience. But at the end of the day, I think that every single person who is on the path to becoming a nurse or a CRNA, you're so smart and capable and you have so much to offer to your patients. You have so much like good to give into the world. I just want for y'all to be freed from the constant rat race of trying to be a 98% student and basing your self-worth on the opinion of people outside who are not you. You will fail at some point. When that time comes, practice self-compassion. Practice reframing your mindset towards mastery instead of performance. So the goal is to become a great clinician. The goal is not to be in the top 1% of your class. Guys, check out our episode next time. We're going to be talking about your first day in the OR, everything you need to know to succeed as an RRNA on your first day. Make sure you like and subscribe to this podcast. It helps us reach more people. We love giving out education for free. And of course, when you're ready to dive deeper, check out our membership. Again, all of the articles and cross-reference YouTube videos are going to be linked below. We'll see you next time.